All right, we're only going to have one shot at this. If we fuck it up, we have to stop. Ready? And... Oh, I start. (laughs) (laughs) Before you leave any terrible tips... Shifties. Before you go on to Yelp and write a collection of angry quips... Before you laugh at a waiter that trips... Shifties. Before you stuff that napkin into your glass after wiping your lips... Remember that the Shifties podcast is... Watching you. Remember that the Shifties podcast is tracking tracking everything that you do. So you better behave yourselves. You better keep it in line. Or we'll tell horror stories about you till the end of time on Shifties. Boom and welcome back to Shifties. It's been two years-ish. Hey guys, I'm Joey. I'm Wallace. And I'm Andrew, also known as Cold Cut. Our first episode in two years, and we figured we'd catch up with each other. See what's been happening since uh, we last did this show. So our style today, our format's going to be we're each going to interview each other. So one person will be interviewed, the other two will ask questions. We've prepared questions and have not, the, the interviewee has not seen the questions that are prepared. So... We should have some good discussions. Guys, anything else to say? Uh, I think that from what I have to say is that we've told a lot of stories on Shifties over the years, but we've never really dug into our own personal stories as much. And I think that this is something cool. It's something that we can introduce more of ourselves as, and it's a, a good way to catch up after a couple of years off. The year of no restaurants. The years of no restaurants. Well, Joy, Joy's up first, and let's just get started instead of continuing to waffle. Hit oh, me. See. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, okay, so lots of restaurant stuff has changed in the last two years. Um, there's, I don't know if you've heard, called the Great Resignation or something like that. All the people not wanting to work at Taco Bell and whatnot, sort of a reevaluation of the value of of service industry workers. So first question for you, Joey, is how has your view of yourself and your value as an employee evolved and developed over the course of the pandemic? Because you've worked mostly through it, whereas Wallace and I has had a lot of time off. So yeah, how, what's your perspective and changes on your value as a Everybody employee? like you who got free money from the government are bastards because I didn't. <laughs> um... You got a little free money. Uh, yeah, I got a little free money. But, <laughs> um, you know, I consider myself in a way fortunate to not have had the sit on the couch syndrome that many of my friends and fiance were afflicted with. Yes, I'm engaged now. And uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Because um, I saw how that really affected their lives and it kind of prevented them from doing anything, let alone working, but any type of work for themselves or you know, self-starting type of stuff. Did you work all the way through? You you did the yeah. coding class at some point, I which worked, is pretty much work. I worked at Windy City uh, up until September of 2020. Then went to coding boot camp. Did enjoy it very much. Uh, and then did some DJing shortly thereafter and moved to California, where we are now. And, um, and have gotten back into the restaurant business. So... One of us is back in, and we have things to talk about. But to answer your question directly, um, 
I found my value as a worker uh, more fungible, if you will. So at Windy City, when the pandemic happened, we had no dine-in service, obviously, but we did have takeout service. And what that led to, especially because there was no customers in the restaurant, is anyone could kind of go anywhere and do anything. And so we all did. So I actually learned bartending at the time. I also learned how to make deep dish pizza, how to prep it. I did every single job from the dishwasher to the bartender to the front door and occasional pseudo managing at that restaurant because of the pandemic. And I'm actually very grateful for that. One, fantastic team environment. Like everybody who was there, we were in it. We were, we were totally cohesive in a team, no one above the other, everyone tip sharing and everything. Um, and I look back on that experience with a great amount of fondness. Yeah, it sounds very validating. I, mean, I had very much the opposite experience working in a restaurant during the pandemic and felt very uh, taken advantage of. Mm. And I feel like, I mean, that just sounds like a very affirming experience where your value was like respected and like you got to like learn and your your experience was valued by your boss. I mean, that sounds awesome. Did that change your perspective on what you think the most difficult role in a restaurant is or shape how you think of your coworkers? The first part, no, only because I had no presumptions about what the most difficult part of a restaurant is. It's the line. Easily. Um, and I always knew that. Uh, it gave me a newfound respect for it, for sure. Um, and as far as coworkers, yeah, because the people who, the, the few people who weren't super down to get their hands dirty basically phased themselves out. And um, the people who did remain and have that quality of being willing to just do whatever to help out the team, I consider all of those people friends still. There's, it's just a good lot of people, and it's a privilege to be in a work environment with a good lot of people. Is there anything else you want to add on to that one, or we can jump to the next one? I'm sure we'll talk more about the pandemic yeah. as this podcast goes on. It will come up for sure. Okay, so then question two, stepping away from restaurants for a second, we can talk a little bit more about your music production and how that's gone. Um, how has finding your sound as Deep State gone, or are you still finding that? Is it still something that you're chasing? Parts of it are a work in progress. Um, I think in EDM you have a variety of what you'd call a signature sound. So if I were to cite Dirt Monkey, for example, you both know that he just makes dubstep, but instead of like a gnarly wah sound, it goes bleep, and like he makes, he's like found one sound mm. that was super crazy different and rode that, and that is his, notably his. Um, other artists, I would cite perhaps Nero, for example, as a more old school uh, group. They have a couple signatures. They have an emphasis on the low mids. They have uh, heavy, tr t heavy tom and kick drum beats um, that tempo their songs that are totally out of the box compared to normal EDM drums. So for us, we've picked things up along the way. One thing that we did, which I really think is fun, um, is we took our logo, which is that little globe, and we turned it into a wavetable, like a sound wavetable, mm. and made sounds out of it. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a synthesizer, right? And that's it produces sounds 
you start with like, and then you just do shit to it, and eventually it turns into wah, 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 wah. It all starts with one single electronic buzzy tone. And in certain programs, you can upload an image, and it will convert it into a wave table so that it will analyze the image, turn it into a three-dimensional thing, and then you can pick a point, a 2D point along that image, and it will take that 2D that line and turn it into a, a wave, a sound wave. And that will produce a sound. What does it sound like? Um, do you, you know our song, 1984? It has, yeah. At the end, it has a like, blah, blah. it's that, that thing. That's a pretty good sound for your logo to turn into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turned out all right. <laughs> um, Deep State, also known as, blah, blah. well, that's definitely kind of a thing. We make mid-tempo, and a big signature of that is sounds that go blah, blah a lot. Um, so we've got a few of those. I'd say other signatures, all the songs sound like they're sci-fi songs. You know, they're super ethereal. Alex loves high keyboard sounds, um, sometimes to my chagrin. And uh, <laughs> he uh, just, just starts these compositions that are so uh, cinematic, if you will. So I'd say cinematic uh, storytelling. They usually start somewhere and end somewhere completely different. They're really meant to be uh, able to be listened to start to finish. Um, yeah, you can drop them into a set, but there's there's a lot of uh, moving parts. They're very rarely simple songs. I think the only simple song we ever made was the first one we ever made. Um, and so the pitfalls of that are EDM is really hard to make. Very hard to produce. The more stuff you have moving, the harder it is to balance it. And so that's been our learning curve so far is, okay, we just put in what now? All of this, these crazy new sounds that have varying frequencies and then balancing all of those when you have, let's say, 90 tracks in an EDM song. That means that you have 90 different channels of stuff playing throughout a track. Not all at the same time, but throughout the whole song 90 different things play do you have songs that have 90 tracks involved yes wow yeah um one it's usually around 65 70 for us Mm. but kind of as you grow we found that you begin to use more and more because you're able to integrate them well Mm. so yeah making complex music balanced and edm punchy while still having depth to it i would say Mm. you told me once when I was starting to learn how to DJ and you were teaching me that EDM is made to be mixed. All of it is designed to be incorporated together and to flow in a sense with at least one other thing. It sounds like, is that something that you guys attempt to do when you make your songs or are you trying to go for more of like single piece standalone songs? It's certainly time wise and tempo wise, it's flowable. So our sections, if you will, are you know 16 bar intro 16 bar drop 8 to 16 bar breakdown and then 16 bar drop so that any dj who gets the song can look at it and go okay this is the standard delineation of song length Mm. however musically we don't phone in the intro like Mm -hmm. some artists do right like there is actual progression between the elements so it can be appreciated as a single piece but it's not a nine and a half minute dead mouse song that like has to be played in its entirety you know (laughs) (laughs) okay 
at what so at what point in your life did you realize you had absolutely no control over your current situation? Hmm. Can you expand on that? I think the thought of this question is is there a point in your life where you stop and you're like no matter what I do, nothing will change my outcome. Like I am I'm in this right now and I cannot do anything to affect it. It's hard because I'm pretty deterministic. Even if it's a long process thing, like the first thing that comes to mind is my fiance's family. We're actually pretty good now. And that in and of itself is a remarkable statement because mm-hmm. we are heavily at odds uh, politically, kind of like philosophically, um, but have really worked, I would say mutually worked to make, make headway and find common ground and, and be friends. Um, but to get there, I actually got advice from my 100-year-old great-grandmother. She's now 100. She was probably in her late 90s when she gave me this advice. Um, she said, Joey, well, you're marrying her family too. She's not going to go away from them. They're going to be around forever if you choose to stay with her. So the long and short of it is you got to figure it out, dude. And at the time in which I was like, no, I don't because <laughs> I'm just so right. And, you know, I'm going to bring this girl along to my ways. Um, choose learning that or accepting that, accepting that certainty, realizing that nobody's family's perfect. Families comes in, you know, better and worse packages, but, um, why don't I look for the good that I can take out of them and that I can learn from, learn from them? Uh, everybody in the world can teach you something. And so I, you know, I think I've improved as a person learning how to, you know, valuing their values, realizing what I didn't value that they valued that actually is good and important and beneficial, um, has brought me along. So I mean, examples of that, like something that they valued that they, that you kind of learned, to expand your worldview. Yeah, man. I'm a wasteful person. Hmm. Very wasteful. I don't turn lights off when I leave the room. I'll throw away extra food on my plate. They don't. Like, no, you save that and you reuse it. And Whitney, the pack rat that she is, um, just so often, I'll be like, man, I wish I had this name X once in a million years needed thing, and she has it. And that's been very convenient and cool. Uh, as well as, kind of always having like a a mental index of of things and how you can use them it kind of helps you systematize your life which mm-hmm. i am so bad at mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and so yeah i'll say that did you do the classic talk to the parents about having their daughter's hand in marriage and how did that all kind of shake out post engagement announcement what was their reaction after you guys made it public? Well, I had to dodge a few bullets, but no, um, <laughs> it, it was all, um, it was all done by the book. Um, I let slip to Whitney's little nephew who I really like, uh, that, you know, I was going to ask her to marry me and I caught some heat for that. But I was like, guys, Whitney knows I'm going to propose to her. We've been dating for seven years. And so uh, 
she knew it was coming. She said, no when. And I did ask for her. Uh, I asked her dad for her hand in marriage. I took him out to his favorite pizza shop down in Long Beach. Um, we had an honest conversation, and I wanted to give him the platform to air his grievances because mm-hmm. I felt that was important. Did he air grievances? Um, Just to pry real hard. <laughs> I don't think they'll listen to this. So um, Whitney actually told me what they were beforehand. Mm. So she gave me some prep. He aired two of the three she told me, so I threw in the third one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're like, yeah, get them all out. I know there's more. <laughs> um, slyly. But, uh, yeah, and, and Whitney's dad is a very good, decent man. He doesn't talk shit. Hmm. He keeps his thoughts to himself, and he kind of just puts his head down and fulfills his role as a father, as a worker, whatever. Um, and... I didn't want him to do that with me, you know? Like, I'm going to marry your daughter, the girl who you brought into the world because your brother died and you wanted to replace a life. That, that's true. Um, like, tell me what you think of me, man. I want to know how I can be the best for her. And he told me. He was respectful. We laughed. We joked. We got along. Um, and it was really it went really well. Hmm. That's awesome. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that part of that development that's really cool should we bounce back to restaurants i think so let's do it uh okay so how you're working in a restaurant in california now uh talk to me about the customer base customer base customer base in california versus washington versus i mean there's even a difference depending on the restaurant you're at in washington but like you know how are how are the people if we all lived in Camarillo, California, when we decided to start Shifties and we were all working in restaurants, <laughs> it would be a restaurant. It would be a podcast telling everybody to go work in a restaurant. <laughs> we would not be complaining about our jobs. Uh, I couldn't be happier. Um, it's a wonderful work situation. Um, cut starting with the customers. Suburban folks tend to have more money than people trying to make it in the city. Uh, and they are willing to spend on a night out because, quite frankly, in this town of 110,000 people, there's not a ton to do here. Mm-hmm. So going out to one of the nicest places in town is a fun night. Um, and so I'm able to take my my skills from where I cut my teeth, which is just you know getting pounded over and over and over again by you know, brutal owners, psycho coworkers, you know, all the, the, the whole world gamut of customers, right? Yeah. Um, if and- you want to hear more about that, we've got like 48 <laughs> episodes worth. It, uh, I'm just unflappable at my job now. Nothing can, I mean, I, I say that now, I'm sure something will happen, right? There's still a restaurant, but at the end of the day, uh, it's never going to be like uh, a table accidentally ordering $1,000 more of really expensive wine that they weren't supposed to order because the other server messed up and now I take the heat for it and the guy's going to get fired from Amazon if this goes through and so the restaurant's losing money. That is not going to... That, that's going to be worse than probably <laughs> most things I face down here. Um, people are nice. It's California, suburban California, which is super friendly. Uh, my personality is from here. It meshes with it. Um, I'm, again, fortunate to just have good coworkers, but I think you don't have that many career restaurateurs, and the ones who are 
like it. <laughs> um, so yeah, just a, a much better environment. Uh, it's not stress-free, but compared to uh, how stressful things have been in the past, it's I might as well consider it stress-free. And if I ever do get stressed, it's easy to remind myself. <laughs> it's been there before. Well, let me follow that up with another customer question. Um, so do customers owe good behavior to the wait staff or they're there, they're paying, um, you, like you said, like if there's not a lot to do, sometimes it's a big night out. Are they paying to, uh, like, is their bad behavior included with their meal or like, do you think it's owed to behave well? I act like they have an allotment of certain types of behavior. They're paying me to to be their butler, basically, right? Um, and I worked at a place where it literally is, no, you're the butler. Don't don't be cool. Don't be all cavalier. Shut up. Take them their shit. That <laughs> so there's that place. Here I get to be more cavalier and friendly. But no, I get paid pretty well to figure it out. That's really my job. Yeah, I have to manage a bunch of things all at once, but that happens at all levels of service. The fine dining aspect comes in when you're able to handle that and in the moment, of course, handle the people. Figure out where they're at, figure out what you can say to diffuse them, uh, accommodate them, whatever. So, yeah, I absolutely think they're paying for that. There's a line, of course, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, for for the most part, I think that's a kind of like what we used to talk about the gratitude that we should have for having this job being that it's somewhat cushy especially in the front of house um i'm not gonna complain about people being mean people are mean all the time Mm. it's gotta be cool so i think a follow-up question kind of regards uh the two places right you've got seattle which you could argue that it's not really a food city compared to some cities out there but i think the food scene is strong enough to argue that it is a food city um, versus here in Camarillo where there's not a lot of options for at least like a nicer sit down meal, as you said. And it seems like that kind of range of options in Seattle makes people more entitled and they had a great experience at X place and then they go to Y place and Y place does not live up to their expectations. So do you think that keeping the restaurant scene minimal would actually be a boon for servers rather than a curse? Yeah, um, it's a captive audience in a way. Hmm. What's funny is we're technically the number two restaurant in the city. My fiance's restaurant is the number one. The people who own my restaurant used to own the other one. So we get compared constantly, especially by the customers, because they want to go out to eat someplace nice. It's basically the two places you go. Hmm. So if we have similar menu items or if we're able to, they do a private party better than we can. Like we hear about it because they'll probably go there if they leave us Mm. (laughs) sometimes right after. In fact, that's happened multiple times already, both ways. So, um, but again, there's only two, (laughs) only two. Uh, and just with much less competition. Yeah. It's a boon for the service. Absolutely. So you're saying limited resources make people happier. And that we should all downsize and get rid of all of our shit and our nice restaurants and uh, live in small apartments and drive smart cars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why stop there? I think 
you know, banana hammocks. Yeah, just lose it all. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would certainly help with uh, self-image. Make Is it the banana hammock the smart car of clothes? <laughs> I think we can make that argument. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Uh, analysis paralysis is real. Hmm. Um, yeah, it is. Here's the other thing too. When I'm talking about the overarching stress, my owners, like e- even if we have a bad night or something, like the last night I worked actually, uh, it was a pretty bad night for most of the restaurant. I actually had a great night, but most everyone else had a bad night. There's just some things that went wrong. So, um, but, and you know, people were bummed and they were down, but they felt bad. Hmm. They didn't feel angry they weren't stressed they were gonna get fired they were disappointed that they gave bad service they were disappointed they did their job bad Hmm. and having that security and confidence that you know you're you know you're good you just know you messed up that's kind of cool and i feel like in a hyper competitive environment where there's tons of restaurants tons of people vying for space the top-down pressure to do well oh man that trickles down so much more Hmm. yeah I definitely agree with that. There's, yeah, I think just working in Ballard and working at some of the nicer places in Ballard kind of showed that, that like if you can't cut it here, well, there's other less desirable places to work. And it really put a lot of pressure on on servers and restaurant owners too, in general, to like keep up with, you know, the top restaurants. Absolutely. Do you have fake plants in your restaurant? Uh, oh man, this is a Whitney question. Uh, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I have no idea. We have a lot of real plants. We might have fake ones. Okay. Follow know. up fake plants, tacky or practical. Oh man, they're practical. I mean, I have fake plants in my room mixed with me real plants. So whatever, like fake plants can look good. So your room is like a game of, uh, impo- what's the imposter game among us. Yeah. Your room is an among us game of plants. Yeah, I wake up in the middle of the night, just kick it over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last question. You just moved to California. Well, not just. Um, But, I mean, you're like like a network builder. You know, you had had such a group in Seattle. Uh, You know, you've got a new restaurant crew. Like, how has, like, how do you build a new group of friends? Like, I... I mean, friends are pretty irreplaceable, and that's like a big, dramatic move. You've been in Seattle for a long time. Like, do you see yourself going back? Like, do you hold on to your old group of friends? Like, are you trying to? Do you think that you'll make friends that are as substantial as the ones that you already have in the future? Like, what's your, what is your like social construction thought process in the midst of this move? That's a really good question. I see why you guys are proud of that one. Um, (laughs) So it's kind of a switch up answer. The primary reason why Whit and I moved here is to be closer to our families. Um, I'm very fortunate to say this. Every relative that I have ever known growing up is still alive, including my 100 year old great grandmother. And I, that is my network. I have a big network of family and I am one of the ones in the family. We're not we're not great communicators. We respect each other's independence. We know we're 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 all going to handle our own stuff. Um and so no one, you know, we love seeing each other of course, but no one 
puts upon you to, you know, to be around or whatever, like at least not for me. So I have made an individual effort, even living in Seattle to see as many people as I could in the span of whatever time I was here, whenever I came back down. So now that I am here, I have these relationships with my family, with my extended family, like personal one-on-one relationships that, um, I'm focusing on that right now. Um, of course, working in a place, I've already made new friends at my work and, uh, it's great to see all those people. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's also possibly being engaged, but I've got a lot of other stuff to focus on and I have you guys, like you're willing to come down here and visit me. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I guess the drive isn't there that much. Also, I live 45 to an hour from LA, which is really where I'd go to kind of meet people in my demographic, unless I wanted to go shoot pool at the dive bar. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'd say, I'd say since family's nearby, you know, some of them are older. That's what I'm focusing on. All right, this isn't a question, but you have the floor for 30 seconds to rant and rave about whatever you want. Timer starts when you're ready. Hold the microphone away from your faces. Okay. Aliens are real and no one cares. Like it's at this point if you're a skeptic about aliens, you're the one who's living in crazy land. Uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of videos, so much animal proof. The government's like, yep, it's real. Nobody cares. Literally, in my opinion, the biggest turning event of our lifetime. Oh, the pandemic's what we live to. We're going to live through extraterrestrial life and nobody cares except, well, I care. You guys care. But yeah, get with it, people. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good rant, though. That was a good rant. I think if you go back and listen to the uh, haunted episode, because I moderately care. I'm like interested in hearing about the theories, and I think it's kind of cool. And like the lore is all, you know, there's stuff behind it. Um, and that's pretty much all of our stances on the supernatural. Colcut does not care. Joey cares and believes, and I'm like on the fence. Uh, there are supernatural <laughs> things that I believe in, but aliens and ghosts are not among them. Or maybe there's. A, never mind. Never mind. I'm not stealing the floor. I'm not stealing the rant floor. Well, this is cool, guys. Thanks for having me on. Can I uh, can I smoke in here? Yeah. Can I can I swear on the podcast? Uh-huh. Is that okay? Yeah, you can. Okay, cool. And you're just gonna ask me questions? Yeah, you actually have to smoke. I rubber banded an entire pack of cigarettes together, and you have to answer questions without removing it from your mouth. Oh, perfect. <laughs> just trying to channel channel past guests here. All right, let's just jump right into it. You've been a you just ended your turn as a kayak guide mm-hmm. on F- San Juan Island. Friday Harbor? Friday Harbor is a town on San Juan Correct. Island where the pig war happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did kayak guiding teach you about the world that you didn't know before and did it affect your worldview? I'm going to start with worldview first because I think that's the most impactful thing that happened to me um, with guiding. I essentially like lived on random tiny islands and slept in a tent for four or five nights at a time um, while I paddled around to other islands and talked to mostly cool people about their lives and showed them interesting things. And it made me more appreciative of that realm. I think that 
before I was fairly casually outdoorsy. Um, and then after that, it was kind of like, all right, this is an amazing limited resource. And I think that, you know, protecting it with my lifestyle as best I can is something that I need to do. Like I was environmentally conscious before, but I wasn't like kind of like walking the walk as much, I guess. So then post guiding, I think taking more steps to think about how I can limit my personal impact because I do think that is important. I kind of had the mentality of, Oh, like there's so many people I can't get everybody on board with like how I want to live. So like why bother as much? But I do think that it does matter to me now because I've seen how my choices to do things impacted guests and how like they kind of left sharing a similar mindset as far as preserving, protecting and appreciating what, uh, cool and wonderful natural beauty surrounds us. Uh, what was the first part of the question? Sorry. What did it teach you about the world? What did it teach me about the world? I think that it taught me about the what it taught me was that, again, was from meeting and interacting with guests. Almost all of them were independently wealthy. Like all of them were someone that was in a fulfilling career, like in medicine or... Some people were like professors um, and they were all a little bit older. And by a little bit older, I mean about twice my age, usually, usually in their fifties or plus. And it taught me that you shouldn't do that when you're just, when you're old, like you shouldn't just wait until you're old to go out and kind of seize that adventure moment. Um, I know a lot of them had done cool stuff in their earlier years, but seeing how slowed down they were compared to myself and other younger guides and just other younger people on the trip uh, made me want to go out there and grasp it for myself now. And, and yes, I kind of going back to the financial side of things, like they're able to afford Mm -hmm. what they did because they work for it. But I don't think that you necessarily need to have a lot of money to, to do the kind of things that they did. Uh, So you're like seeking out more opportunities to like travel and experience nature that don't necessarily cost hundreds of dollars. Yeah. I mean, a big term in like guiding world and like outdoors world is dirt bagging, uh-huh. um, which generally just means you're going out to do as much as you can with as little money as possible, like sleeping on couches, taking showers at like uh, truck stops, um, living out of your van or your car or whatever that may be. And generally like seeking authentic experiences. And I think that uh, working as a guide and working with people that live those lifestyles definitely inspired me to seek more of that for myself. And so, so folks know maybe what, how much does it cost? How much did your trip cost? Good question. Uh, For the camping trips, I believe it was $200 per day. Um, And that includes like all of your rentals of gear that includes all of the food. Um, and having a guide, you know, paddle you around or ride on bikes with you around uh, an amazingly beautiful place. Um, and that was for the camping one. And then for the ones where we stayed in inns, I think it was $500 per day, which definitely drew in like the generally older crowd. I would say the average age was 68 for the, the ones where we would stay in like bed and breakfasts. Um, Yeah. I would, I think that's accurate as far as I know for the cost of things. What's your best guide fact? 
All right, so there's this stuff called bull kelp, right? <laughs> and it's uh, a plant that grows from the ocean floor. It's an amazing plant. It grows on a hot day up to two feet in a day, which is impressive, to say the least. Um, it's essentially just the bamboo of the ocean, and it grows huge beds all along the Pacific coast, um, and they're essentially just forests. There's a documentary called My Octopus Teacher, which is really cool, that kind of digs into that. So they're hard, they're stick-like almost, and they grow fairly large bulbs. The bulbs are about the size of, uh, of an orange or a grapefruit, depending on the bulb. And a fun fact about them is that dolphins and whales, um, some of the only creatures that have sex for pleasure, will use them to masturbate and will rub themselves on the bull kelp to completion. Wait, I thought that was a fake fact. No, no, that's a real fact. I would kind of follow it up with that doesn't necessarily happen because I set the whole thing up by stopping in a bed of kelp, uh-huh. pulling one of the fronds out of the water, yeah. ripping it off and taking a bite. Yeah, you did that shit to me. <laughs> and then offering my guests the chance to taste the kelp as well. Which I did. And it tastes not bad. It tastes like salty kale. A little salty. Yeah, a little salty. It's just the seawater though. And then once everyone's tried it, I then let them know the fact that orcas and dolphins jerk off on it. <laughs> Were you the best guide? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. Um, I think if you ask any guide that, they will say yes. I was the best guide. Um, Because everyone's got their own style, much like how you would wait a table, you bring your own energy to a place. I think that I was the most uh, accommodating to individual needs. And I was the best potentially at reading what a group wanted and what a group needed. And not just necessarily reading it. I would ask people, like, what are you most excited for on this trip? And then if I can make that happen, it's going to happen. So, like, providing an experience that I think people, that would fit what they wanted from it. Um, I made the best food. That's for damn sure. Like, nobody even questioned me on that one. Um, But I think that it's very much like one person's best guide is one person's not best guide, just depending on like what they want to get out of the trip. But I did my best to accommodate as much as I could. A bit of a silly one. What's the key to rocking a mustache as long as you have? Uh, not being able to grow a beard and just owning it. Um, I don't know. It's like, it's a thing that is such a part of me at this point that everyone that's known me for the past four or five years just kind of associates me with it. Um, and I don't, I mean, I grow a a pretty like healthy mustache. So I think that that helps. And I don't know, just owning it. People kind of like think that you're, you kind of fall into two archetypes, like creepy or fun. And, uh, I think that I try to just fall into the fun one as best as I can. (laughs) All right, fair enough. <clears throat> this next one's a big one, so I'll move right to it. Do you think humanity is going to pull through? Do you think we're going to pull through against the various challenges that we face today? And if so, any ideas? Yeah, I do think that we will. I think that the real question is how many will. Because I think that as we keep facing the issues that we're facing and we're losing 
homes to title creep and fires and all these things like that's going to actually start to catch up with us and that second shoe is going to drop and we're going to realize that we can't actually sustain the amount of people that we have i think that's an issue um and i also think that you know we're living in a time of a disease that's kind of run rampant and it's pretty mild to be honest like yes it, it kills people it's not to be taken lightly but its mortality rate is much lower than it could be and i think that if we keep encroaching on the territories that we've encroached as far as like digging into habitats that were you know left for animals for so long and these diseases keep popping up that have been in animals and been fine for so long and keep affecting us now something seriously nasty will come out of that and most epidemiologists agree on that and have kind of been saying that for years um so with that i think that our pop population has the chance to be hurt like to be decimated severely and i think that it'll be interesting to see how you know this might not happen in our lifetime but it'll be interesting to see how the percentage that does pull through keeps moving forward and i think that as a species we're incredibly adaptable like we've always made do um and every human does like every adult out there is getting by in their own way i mean until they're not obviously and then they're out but we all do and we all adapt to our, our environments and we make it work so i think that we will but seeing in what capacity we do with what limited resources we have left will be an interesting interesting development any ideas i mean i think that we're already seeing it in the urban scene where we are deprioritizing space in a way like how much space individuals have and need we're building up um which is interesting and we're becoming more and more population dense in all of our cities um so i think that's an answer i think that people will keep migrating from rural areas to urban and suburban areas um because i think that what the rural areas have to offer is becoming less and less valuable as you know supply chains farming all of those things are becoming done by machines um and i think that taking away slowly but taking away the value of a human worker in a lot of those environments will drive people away from from rural areas into urban areas um, and i think that will just keep building up because a lot of the cities that people live in seattle's a great example are very restricted with how much actual space they have um, just by layout of the area around it um, and i think it's interesting to think about what that's going to mean as we just keep putting more and more people into densely populated areas. So on that note, and kind of tying back to what you said earlier, how does your outdoorsman experience color your perspective of whether humanity is going to pull through? Um, I don't know, maybe what you see about human beings, what we're capable of, both good and bad. Yeah, I think that being outside, being uncomfortable uh, physically and like sometimes mentally as well um, brings things out in people. 
and it kind of shows you what they really can do if you ask them of it. And not necessarily me in particular, but I had other guides that had guests that had really, really bad times, <laughs> like <laughs> horrible weather and just like kind of scary situations where they thought they could capsize the boats and things like that. But they made it through and they did it because they had someone telling them that they could. And so I think that imbued a lot more positivity into my belief of human beings and that as long as we have people that tell us that, yes, we can do this, then we can. And you can make people believe you, even if you necessarily don't believe it yourself. It just takes kind of a charisma and like a ability to charm people into things and convince them that it will be okay. Because um, it will, again, until it isn't. <laughs> that certainty is inspiring, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so do you think people are fundamentally good and moving in a positive direction or do you think people are not necessarily evil but more just like neutral I guess and still in a weird boundary drawing holding pattern that goes back millennia yeah I'm not going to draw on guiding for this one because I interacted with cool people for the most part if you're going out on like a kayaking trip or like a multi-day cycling trip like you're cool and you're motivated and you generally like have your shit figured out I think for that answer I need to look at the generations below our generation and think about what drives them and what motivates them and their drives and their motives are pretty awful at least from what I've seen um, because everyone is obsessed with quick fame and instant success and promotion of their own brand, whatever that might be. And they're using platforms like TikTok is my chief enemy here. Um, they're using platforms like that to just pump agenda and just trivial bullshit out oh, into the ether. Even those are created by older generations like who are taking advantage of like unfinished undeveloped minds you know like people who are in early stages and like they see flashy pictures and cool stuff and like people doing cool stuff and like you know like those are those are the, the mark zucks and whatnot like you know like i don't know what do you think about that part of it well yeah it's definitely influenced by people that are at the top right now that's without a question like they are paving the road if you will but i think if you want to look at where the road is going to lead you have to or you know you have to think about who's walking that road and just like the boomers and the greatest generation like those people will die out and there are way more people that will follow behind them and be influenced by their actions and the groundwork that is set now um so i think that yeah telling everyone that they can be their own social media figure and that they should and that's a cool thing and that's how you would be important um is kind of dangerous and i see people that become it's it's an easy road to narcissism and to think that everything that you say is right and important and needs to be said and i don't think that's true i think there's a lot of things that don't need to be said out there how do you quit vaping um, cold turkey, you know, I think that, uh, 
<laughs> I think it's really funny that all of the vape companies are like, oh yeah, we've got the taper method. You can do, <laughs> you can do your hardcore 10% or whatever nonsense they have all the way down to like 1.8, I think, or even lower. And I think that's a trap. I think that you can, your brain is like, I love this addictive substance. I can be, I can get fine on less of it, but it's so easy just to like bounce from less of it back to more of it. And I think that with all, almost all addiction, it's just the mental effort of beating it and you beating it and not doing like a trick. Um, And of course, like you can't do it by yourself for a lot of things. Like you need doctors to help you get off of opiates. You need uh, continued care to like keep talking to you, checking in like with a therapist or a psychologist or psychiatrist. You need, you do need help. But at the end of the day, that battle is you versus the substance and you have to prevail and you have to want to win. All right. What is your alignment? D&D wise. I think I'm lawful neutral. Ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the lawful. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, fully in the lawful camp, but I do think that rules aid us. Um, I also have the, I think the decision-making ability to decide when rules do not aid me and then to step outside of them. But for the most part, I think that rules do at least give us a somewhat clear direction of how to get by. Um, And I think that neutral is a little bit more obvious. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm like impactful in either direction with people too much. Um, Definitely more in like the good camp, but I do think that I think for myself first in most situations and what my actions are going to cause me personally. So I remember a time when you defined yourself as true neutral. Mm. What changed? I think true neutral is just kind of boring (laughs) to be honest. Um, And I could still see myself having an argument for it and that being that I just said that I break the law or the rules for my own benefit. Um, Because I do it in ways that don't necessarily impact others. I do things that only impact myself for the most part. I'm sure that's not an absolute statement, but I think that's where I try to, to, to step outside the law or the rules or whatever you want to call it. And you used to do it more? Um, yeah, I think I've also just had some more time to think about it. And that was also when I was playing Dandelion. And I think that I was kind of like putting a lot of myself into that character while also thinking of him as a true neutral character, um, which he was. But I don't think that I'm necessarily entirely my D&D character. Well said. (laughs) Okay, well, the next question was, what is true neutral? So you got that one. Hmm. So at one point, we parted ways in this podcast. Mm -hmm. And even at that point, I think we'd all agree, the podcast was on the rocks (laughs) 
for all of us for various reasons. Um, so this is a two-part question. Wally, do you have a name for your drunk alter ego? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah, I actually, that's really all I wanted to ask. (laughs) Um, man, I don't have a name for it. I mean, that guy's an asshole though. (laughs) Uh, that guy is like chaotic evil a lot of the time he's chaotic good some of the time but he's also chaotic evil and like talking about narcissism like it it overinflated ego and just kind of a devil may care attitude is something that i associate with my drunk self um and sometimes it's like it's a very like magnanimous kind of overinflated ego, and I buy a lot of sh- I bought a lot of shit at Seven Eleven and handed it out to people. Um, and sometimes there's like weird flashes of like self care and uh, like smashing my phone in the street. I think that was a version of self care in a sense because I was like, this thing is not necessarily good for me right now, but it was very misdirected. But for the most part, uh, just a it kind of brings up a lot of like anger and like just gives me a negative outlet to express discontent with any and everything in my life, whether it's a real thing that I'm actually upset about or something that I'm just saying because I'm trying to like be hurtful. Um, it comes out. So yeah, it removes a barrier that should be there most of the time. Fairly put, I think that's true of all of our uh, intoxicated alter egos <laughs> to, to different degrees and in different areas. Um, well, ma'am, I think I can admit it saying this. Uh, we tried after that. It sucked. It was so bad. Shifties was so bad without Wallace. I have no shame in admitting it. Uh, so I find this very cathartic probably cut this part out but i just wanted to say that i mean i think the show is catharsis that's what we started it for anyways was to like have conversations where we bitch about work (laughs) and uh tell crazy stories because we had lots of them and that was always for me the best part of shifties was getting to sit down and decompress and then also opening it up for other people to do the same thing and for them to also tell their crazy stories and their awful stories and all those things. And I think that that part of Shifties has been and always will be my favorite part of podcasting and doing this show. Speaking of, there, there is one story that you haven't had an opportunity to share. Um, so you've been sober going on two years now. Uh, but for the first while, you were still bartending, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that is something I've always wondered. How do you pull that off? Um, I think that what I first did was I had been sober for about a month or so, and I was still working at Carnivore. And it was not. It couldn't work. It couldn't happen. Um, just with that job and just the environment of that job. And so I quit there. And I told my, I mean, she wasn't really my manager, but I told the head chef 
who essentially ran the place that I was doing it for the reason that I was doing it. I was like, I need to get out of this environment. It's not healthy for me. And she was very cool and understanding. Didn't make a big deal of it. She asked that I would stay on for a little bit longer. And I think I compromised on less time than she asked, but I did. And then I was out of restaurants for a while. I think I was just kind of uh, unemployed for a month or two and was fine with that. That was okay. I tried to find non-restaurant jobs and was very unsuccessful. And then I started working at a restaurant that was very professional and adult. And everyone there was, for the most part, a lifer, took it very seriously and was in a much larger restaurant family that cared for its employees and kind of put their well-being first over uh, sales almost like they had comprehensive health insurance for everyone and were just like very dialed into personal needs of their employees and everyone there was very accepting of the fact that I didn't drink and um, encouraged it and were you know somewhat I wouldn't say jealous but had their own things they were working on and kind of respectful and you know didn't didn't joke about it or like not take it seriously like I had in the past with other coworkers and former friends so it was a good environment to be in for that and there was yeah there's no pressure to like try anything and also people were really cool about it and ask questions that were helpful like is it okay if I drink in front of you and that's never been a problem for me so Things like that, just working in a very empathetic place. So do you believe in the, you're a product of the closest people around you? They say five, but hell, it might be more. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I circle back to the, to saying that, you know, fighting addiction or any addiction is all you, but surrounding yourself with people that don't want to help you improve your life and in fact drag you back down at any chance they can is definitely not good um so yeah picking who you who you surround yourself with is huge for anything like if you want to be creative and do creative things like find people that are on the same page as that and if you want to drink yourself into a hole find people that do that like yeah who you are friends with impacts impacts you greatly of course i'm gonna change gears uh what what do you where do you where do you want your life to go like what do you want to end up like what does being successful look like to you i think if you asked me that when i was 18 i would have told you that i wanted to teach in a university and write things and be like a respected member of that community. I think that was my, my hope, I guess, and my dream. Um, and then having gone through the university, university system and having had relationships with the professors where they talked about what their life was actually like and what they had to do and like, in a sense, sell out to get to where they are, which wasn't necessarily like, even that lofty by any means, like talking to people that professors that made $60,000 a year and had to work the worst class times and just didn't really get what they wanted out of teaching on that level. 
kind of shaped that and definitely changed my thoughts on that. Um, and I think that at this point in my life, I'd rather be happy with the work that I do and find something that allows me to feel fulfilled um, and pursue passions with work because I think that's a, a good way to not ever burn yourself out or if so to slowly do it over the course of 40 years and then retire um, but I think that finding something where I can marry my drive to teach because I still enjoy that very much um, that was a thing that I reaffirmed with guiding like it's really cool to learn stuff and then tell people that stuff um, so something where I can teach, but also where I can stay active and outside. So I think that for me, that means that I work in some sort of educational environment where the outdoors is featured. Um, I know that outdoor rec is a thing. Lots of schools have programs for it. So I think that's an ideal situation. Um, and I think that that's not something that I want to sustain for forever because I think that I find myself really... I don't like complacency. I don't like the idea of doing one thing forever until I stop working because that just sounds so boring. So I want to find something that keeps me fulfilled and happy for five years or so. And then I think at that point I reassess. So I don't really have a concrete answer of where I want my life to end up. I can't see that far ahead. Hmm. But I know that who I am is not someone that would be complacent and happy with something simple do you want to have kids sorry jay <laughs> you can ask it um yes the answer is yes i do want to have children i think that it is a selfish choice i think it's a very selfish choice and i think there have been many times in my life where i wish that i had not been born and i was somewhat resentful of that um, and I do not like the idea of passing that burden onto someone else. That to me is the scariest part mm -hmm. of having children. But I do think that I was not raised in an environment where anyone acknowledged that or even thought the same way as me. And I think that having that knowledge that that is a thing can be helpful. And I think that being empathetic and understanding and talking through things like that and communicating uh, with your offspring can help with that. Wallace, when was the last time you prayed for anything? The last time that I legitimately prayed where I believed that my prayer had an effect was when I was a child. I was probably seven or eight. I was in the ocean and we had an inflatable boat thing wasn't big it was like maybe two people big and i got rolled by a wave and trapped under it somehow and kind of like tangled up in it under the water and i had lost all my breath when i got rolled by the wave and i knew that i was drowning because i couldn't figure out which way was up it was all dark and sandy and i prayed to jesus specifically i was like Jesus, if you save me right now, I will believe in you. Like, I'm, I think I'm going to die. And 
I kind of like looked around and looked up and saw light and swam up to the light and did not die. And that is the last time that I legitimately prayed. And it was a pretty hefty one <laughs> because I kind of, you know, threw my life into a God's hands. And you could say that I was saved. So you lied to Jesus. You know, I kind of did, but also I don't think that I necessarily did because if you separate God and Jesus, which maybe you should and should not do, they're pretty different people. Like Old Testament God and Jesus are not on the same page. Jesus is generally just forgiving and open to whomever. God is pretty wrathful. And I do find that most of my issues with religion arise from Old Testament God. Um, genocide and just general hatred and hatred disguised as, or it's even the other way around, really. It's a means of control disguised as a hatred for certain groups of people. And I generally just disagree with that. So you're saying the Philistines didn't have it coming. <laughs> uh, I forget what were the Philistines I up think, to I think that was Goliath I think Goliath was a Philistine I don't remember mm, oh yeah and the many wars and the underdogs won because of the champion battle to get out of the weeds a little bit <laughs> do you currently or have you throughout you know since age 7 uh, believed in a creator of the universe an entity that did something I think that I I know that I believe that I can't know that I have seen some pretty and had some pretty interesting thoughts sometimes with the aid of psychedelics that have been kind of earth shattering and like this couldn't just happen you know I've had moments where I've felt the presence of something in me, um, whether that's a deity of sort, or I felt like I'm a piece of something bigger than me. Um, but I don't necessarily know if we've gotten that right because human beings are manipulative and people that control giant groups of people will twist things in order to maintain order. And I don't know necessarily if any written record, whether it be a Christian written record, Hindu, Muslim, whatever it may be, got it right because we are very fallible and we're trying in essence to capture the idea of something that is infallible when we talk about a deity. And I think that's beyond our capabilities wouldn't necessarily agree it has to be infallible but that's why i asked the you know some entity at the top basically hmm. regardless of what it does or how it behaves mm-hmm. you know is is there one there you're still in the just gonna have the question mark basically i think so because i think what's more important for me than determining if there's an entity that knows what is right or has an idea of what is right or what is, or maybe it's neutral, who knows, is it's more important for me to find things that I can do that I think are 
important to me and those around me um, versus relying on something to tell me or believe in something that is right. Because I don't think that throwing all of your trust on one thing is the way to do it. Even if somehow you figure out the capital T truth and then do it, we're still broken and we still have our own selfish impulses and drives. So I think that discovering personal truth for me, at, at least in this moment is more important than seeking a God or a God figure. Perhaps personal truth is a reflection of capital T truth. Yeah. So Wallace, the floor is yours. Talk shit for 30 seconds. All right, go ahead. So I am fairly frustrated with American fast food culture, McDonald's culture, or whatever you want to call it. It's the, basically the idea of eating on the go. I think it's stupid. I think if you go to any other country, you don't see anyone doing that. They go to a coffee shop, they sit down, they drink their coffee at the coffee shop. They don't walk around holding it. They don't, you know eat their lunches in their car or not take lunch breaks. They sit down and they enjoy food as it should be. Food is a ritual and it should be sacred. And I think we need to stop taking away time from it. I agree with that more than aliens. <laughs> I drank a lot of coffee. I can feel it. Well, you know who else drinks a lot of coffee? Who? Film directors. Film directors? <laughs> I guess so. And speaking of... Andrew Jared Davies, also known as Cold Cut, you recently made two two movies, basically. Now, not like feature-length films, but they're long things to tell a story, and they're very complicated. And I want to know, for you, what's the most difficult part of actually making a movie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> for Okay, for me, the most difficult part of actually making a movie is uh, getting everyone to actually do their job. Because uh, <laughs> I have a budget of, I don't know, $45, just <laughs> whatever. Just, I mean, the, ideally the budget is zero, but, you know, you got to buy some stuff. Uh, and I feel like when you're doing stuff that's purely, purely passion projects, uh, the passion levels are not equal. And... Uh, I mean, I do this as well. Like, I overcommit to things. I, I, my eyes are bigger than my stomach, if you will. And, you know, I like to do really ambitious stuff. But then your life is really complicated. You have a lot of stuff going on. And you, you like, don't want to do things. Like, I mean, I am very fundamentally lazy. Um, I mean, I feel like if you're creative and smart, and clever you are probably also lazy because you come up with ways to minimize the amount of effort you have to put into things um and you know like a lot of creative people i work with i like that and they don't pull their weight or like do what they say they would do or like they commit to multiple things and like this one this this thing isn't their thing so they're they just like back burner it and like and then for me, like that, when other people are backburnering a project, it's hard for me to keep that on the front burner and like hassle people because I, I hate hassling people. I feel like I'm putting them out or I feel like I'm nagging them or something like that. Um, so like 
yeah, I guess like the hardest part about doing thing, doing the movies that I've done is like getting the work done for free. Um, yeah. Okay. Follow up. What is technically the most difficult part of making the most (laughs) difficult part of making a movie is, um, okay. I guess I have two answers. Like one is doing something that you haven't done before. So like, uh, I'm about to shoot something with a bunch of green screens. I've never done that before. And like, if, if you aren't experienced with something, you should do a bunch of tests. You should like test something with the lights you're going to have and test the green screen you're going to have and test the camera that you're going to have. And then you should do it and like edit pieces of it to see what it looks like and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the more work you can do on the front end, the more headache you're going to save on the back end. And like, I've never successfully done enough work on the for the front end to save myself headaches on the back end. And there's like always something that you, that takes you by surprise or that you aren't prepared for. And then you have to like learn the hard way. So like, for example, in the last movie I did, I have, we shot with two different cameras. Um, and one of them was not set up similarly to the other camera, which let me tell you what, you only have to do that once because like <laughs> trying to match those is such a pain in the ass. Or, like, so like, I mean like learning things the hard way is like one of the hardest things because like, I mean you really learn it, but like you have to like solving a problem after you've created the problem is so much more time consuming than solving the problem before you've created the problem. Uh, I guess the other thing is like writing a script is really hard. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to write for fun all the time. I would just like, I was only allowed to play computer games on the weekend and uh, I was only allowed to like watch so much TV and I had so many ideas. I mean, I still have so many ideas, but like when I was a kid, it was so much easier to write because I was, I didn't have all this perfectionist stuff. I didn't have all of this like identity tied up in it. So I would just like write and write and write and write. And I, who knows how good or bad it was. But like at this point I have such like a high bar and like I, I also exacerbated this problem in college where I would write papers and instead of just doing what I know you should do, which is just churn through it and then go back and edit, I would like write so slowly. Like I would write one paragraph and then I would read it and read it and tweak it and change it. And I write scripts the same way. And it's a little nicer when you're writing a script because like, you know, you really want those lines to be good. But like I will, I will essentially just like sit there and run through like hundreds of versions of what the line is going to be and like just you know, getting away from that perfectionism and like getting it out there and then like fixing it, uh, is just tricky because I mean, especially for my writing style, I like really sparse dialogue. I mean, not all the time, but like, I like to write really sparse dialogue. I like the lines to do a lot of heavy lifting. I like to imply a lot of the story and that's like just time consuming. Um, so I usually just take a lot of time on the script. A question in the movie vein, not necessarily related to what we were just talking about, but is there a particular trope with directing or how scenes are set up and shot that you find particularly insufferable? That insufferable. Is- oh man. Let's see. Uh, I mean, okay. The, the first and like the first thing that comes to mind is when I can tell that, none of the movie was shot in a real place. Like, I don't 
think that that's there's a, I can't just say there's no place for big green screen sound stages like universally, but like, man, I want some of the movie to like look and feel like real people in a real place. I mean, I guess like the, the best example of that is there's a bunch of scenes in the Lord of the Rings that like, you know, they were there. Like, you know, they flew in that helicopter up to the top of that mountain. And, like maybe the snow's fake, but like, it looks like real snow. And like, you, you, you can only get that when you're like really there and you can like show how big the space is and how small the people are in it. But then in the Hobbit, there's lots of places that are like clearly filmed and then it gets that weird sheen on it. And the Marvel movies do like an okay job of this where they apply this kind of glossy sheen to everything. So it all looks sort of fake and not fake and you can't tell what's what, but then some of those are just so badly done. Like, I don't think there was a single real place in Black Widow, except for, like, the house that they go to, which is such a lame place. Like, a house is just a house. That, that doesn't express anything about set design to me other than, like, someone put all that shit in the house. But, like, like there's a big prison break sequence, and I'm pretty sure none of that was real. And, like, I, like, you have millions and millions of dollars, man. Like, build a set. Like, I love real sets and... I mean, like, the best example of the power of, like, really doing it is Mad Max, where there's, like, almost no VFX in the whole movie. Like, the, all the cars are real. They blow all of them up. And it's just so much cooler. And, like, yeah. So, over-reliance on CGI is probably my biggest, like, pet peeve. Uh, we just watched Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which I don't think that guy, Richie, heavily relies on CGI, but, like, he's an example of, like, he gets more successful and then everything just starts to look more glossy and like fakey. And like, it's almost like the more money you have, the less it feels like this really happened. And like, I always want to feel like this is a real thing that's really happening. Cause otherwise just make an animated movie. Cause same can be said of music, not movie related. Okay. What is the greatest personal challenge you have faced post shifties? um yeah just being brutally depressed uh i was i've been like suicidal on and off when for a long part of my life when i was like 13 or so i think is when it started um and i don't know maybe like i don't pretty pretty early on in the pandemic i had uh just really challenging experience with my family and for like a long time my family didn't I don't think they really like got my mental health if that makes sense um and I would get in big fights with them a lot throughout my life uh and not that any of that's anyone's fault like mental health is really confusing and weird um but like pretty early on in the pandemic I felt like I felt like I had all these problems that were never going to go away. And like, I still having these same fights with my family and I'm still feeling, I mean, that's like an example, but like there were many areas of my life where I felt like I'm stuck in this thing and it's never going to change. And like that just brought all of these like, well, I guess I should just kill myself then. Cause the only thing I can do about it, um, which I don't think that's like me. I think that's like part of something with how my brain works. Uh, and that's been, just a battle to get away from that. I'm just like, 
especially with the pandemic, like how do you not feel trapped in your life when like you don't have a job and you are like, you know, getting money handed to you, which I'm obviously grateful for, but like, it's not a good feeling. And like, I'm trying to make these movies and like, they're not getting anywhere. And like, I want to be able to use the things I went to college for and I can't. And like, there's, there's no, there's nowhere to go. There's no one to see. Like even going over to your friend's house and playing D and D is illegal. And it's like, like, yeah, I just felt, have felt so trapped like in my life on and off in the last two years. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I guess that's like the biggest struggle I've had in the last two years. It's like my brain very easily goes to like, oh, I should just die then. I don't, I just don't want to be alive. Um, which is weird because I know that's not like me. And sometimes it's like this uncontrollable like brain state that just like comes upon me and you can't like sweep it away. Uh which like I'm still dealing with. I don't have like a, I don't have a like, oh, and then I did this and now I'm like super happy. Um, like happiness is really, really elusive uh, for me. I'm, I don't want to speak for everybody, but like um, even things that should make me happy, like don't. I, I guess I just have such a high bar for myself. And like if I finish a project, it doesn't make me as happy as like not finishing a project makes me upset if that makes sense. Do you have an idea of what might make you happy then? Uh, I think like accepting myself and not, I really believe that like the only reason, the only time I have value is when I'm actively earning that. Like when I'm, uh, doing something really cool or like I'm being the funniest or I'm being the most interesting or like I'm, you know, going to a really big, cool thing or I've like done a show or I've written a thing. And like, I don't assign really like any value to who I, who I am intrinsically. I assign all my value to like what I do actively. And I know that that's like wrong in my in my critical brain like i know that like i have to move to just accept that like it's really who i am that's valuable and that other people value that but uh that's hard <laughs> like and at times i'm more successful at that so like, i mean i guess i believe that like if there's a version of me that is happy one day it's not necessarily a person who is successful like I don't think I'm going to, I don't know, like I, like I could, you know, get some contract and make a movie for a whole bunch of money and everybody says it's great and I'm sure that would make me happy. And then sooner or later, no one cares about it anymore, you know, like, and I'm not going to just be able to string my life along with like success, 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 success. That's not how life works. Um, so like, I, what I try to do is accept like who I am and, and like the value that's intrinsic to myself because there's this weird dichotomy where I see that in other people. And like, I don't, people don't have to like earn their, the right to be my friend other than just by like being themselves and whatnot. But like, uh, 
So it's that kind of double standard. And if I could accept myself for who I am all the time, uh, I think that's closer to what happiness looks like. Well, it sounds like your happiness ethic is very much changed to how important you are. And that's tied to value, you know, for whatever, uh, pseudo capitalistic framework, the value of a person provides Mm -hmm. in terms of importance. I just want to let you know, you're really important to me. Thanks. I mean, I just like loved, I loved, I've always loved history and like, I think about really important people and like, as long as I can remember, I've wanted to just be super important. Um, like, like I loved all the founding fathers. I would watch like some cartoon about the revolutionary war and stuff when I was a kid. And like, I loved learning about all the really important people in history. And I remember talking to my dad a bunch when I was a little kid and just being like, I really want to be like a really important person. Like I want my life to like matter so much. Um, which like he said I could be, you know? Uh, but like, I think the real answer is like, no, you just are, you just are important. Like you don't have to like, no one has to write about you to be important. Uh, which is just, do you think that you mentioned chasing like big moments, like chasing the highs has mm-hmm. kind of screwed up your perception of happiness and that if you could kind of get away from that and find happiness and or completion or fulfillment and smaller things, that could be a step towards that? Yeah, I think so. I think it's more tied to like, I think it's okay to chase big successes, but the other side of that is letting go of identifying failures as personal failure, which I've definitely gotten better at, but like, not that, not that good. Like I have so many projects that were half done or so many things I dragged people into. I mean, there we even go. Look at like, just notice the word that I said, like so many things that I dragged people into and then like didn't finish. And I view that as like, I forced all these people to do all this stuff for me and I couldn't even deliver to them. But like in reality, who cares, man? Like if I'm an 18 year old trying to make some movie and I did something too ambitious, like I wouldn't be mad if someone dragged me into that. I'd be like, Hey, whatever, dude, at least we got to dress up and do something cool for a couple days. But like, I view that as a like, Oh, like mm, I spent all this time and like, I made all these people do this thing. Thomas Jefferson wouldn't do yeah, that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, I forgot what the original question is, but there's my answer. Yeah. All right. What is the Mount Dunkmore of podcasts? What? Okay, I was going to skip this one because it was too complicated. Okay, here's <laughs> what Mount Dunkmore means. Okay. okay. So, it's like Mount Rushmore. Uh-huh. You pick four podcasts uh-huh. that are like the Mount Rushmore podcast, but then there's one, and it just dunks on all of the other Mount Rushmores, and so it's Mount Dunkmore. Oof. So, four of Mount Rushmore's one dunk god. Okay, uh... Four Mount Rushmores, one Dunk God. Holy cow, I might I don't think I listen to enough podcasts for this. Uh okay, I gotta throw Okay, I gotta throw the daily on there. I know it's kind of a lame answer, but 
The reason the Daily is one of my favorite podcasts is because they make it every day, and the production value is like crazy high. And also, Marco Barbaro is an excellent host, and like the amount of production value that they do over and over and over, and the music is like really good. Sometimes my main critique of the daily is that like, I don't want to hear about the same dumb shit over and over again. And sometimes you hear about the same dumb shit over and over again. But as far as like production value goes, and sometimes they have some zingers where like, they're talking about spies or like cool revolutionary leaders or stuff like that. So I put the daily on there. Uh, we can throw Rogan on there just for like, you know, of all the swinging dicks in podcasts. Uh, a lot of people, swing that dick i don't know that that metaphor broke down um i'm gonna throw the adventure zone on there which well the first season of the adventure zone it's got some other good seasons but that's like that's like where i started to think about what's possible dming and like i started to like become more ambitious as a dm and like focus more on the storytelling uh okay what am i gonna round this out with uh oh man i'm gonna go with the dog man encounter podcast what's <laughs> 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 then let's dunk on all of those okay think about that but come on it's like do you want me to contextualize that while you think about that yeah you can contextualize it while i think dog man encounters a shout out to our good lovable idiot adam honore he's not he's incredibly smart but uh who's just if i'm all in on aliens this guy is quadruple all in on bipedal canids i.e giant werewolf things <laughs> that run around and uh hang out with bigfoot and there's a podcast about it called diamond encounters don't listen to it oh okay i mean i guess this is this is a lame answer but i still think serial is the dunk more of podcasts like that's the most entertaining eight 10 however many hours and also like sarah koenig is the most spectacular host i've ever heard in my entire life her voice is just amazingly expressive and just so specific and quirky and i would listen to her talk about anything so i'm, I'm putting her as the dunk more just because she is one of the most skilled storytellers i've ever heard i can't say enough good things about her so it's kind of an fair. obvious answer though. yeah totally fair there you have it all right well, should I take the next one? Oh, I'll take it. Sure. Do you miss restaurants? Not Piccolinos, <laughs> but restaurants in general. The culture, uh, the environment, the people. Yeah, that's like an important distinction. <laughs> For a while there, I just like was so beaten down by Piccolinos. Like I swore I would never return to a restaurant. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, update. I'm going to go meet with uh sylvan at local 360 uh the day after i get back from california so i am returning with my tail tucked between my legs <laughs> to restaurants but okay do i miss restaurants um i mean there's a big part of me that just says no but then there's also the part of me that like made this show for a long ass time and like knows all the value that i got out of it and like i've talked about this on the show before like what my favorite part about restaurants is which is family meal and like that still to this day like my best experience in any job was sitting in the prep kitchen of local in like a lull in service with just like whoever else happened to also have a lull and scooping some family meal putting some secret aardvark sauce on it and then just saying like oh dude zach is so good at making man family meal just like 
having a quick 10 minute um eat what you can like bullshit about your job just blah 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 and it's usually just kind of like dark back there and like it's just such a classic rich experience and sharing food with people is like just uh it's a very powerful form of bonding and um so like that's one of the biggest things i'm looking for i don't know what their current family meal situation is at local 360 but like those experiences like eating family meal um are some of the best experiences of my life and i that's that's the thing that i miss the most about working in restaurants are you gonna bring up family meal in your uh interview with sylvan uh no i'm probably just gonna see how it goes i'm probably just gonna see what they do <laughs> like so sylvan uh i'll come back but uh what's the family meal sitch <laughs> can you from your childhood draw a specific memory that you feel like has shaped who you are today yes um i was in kindergarten and i went to a private i went to private school for every year of my education uh but i was at a private kindergarten and we were singing in chapel or something blah 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 in the sanctuary of the church it was school in the church and all of us finished and we were like filing out of the chapel and a kid further up in line flipped off one of the light switches uh which didn't turn all the lights off. It turned half of the lights off. So it got like half dark and we're all filing out. And then I get to the door and there's three light switches. And I was like, I'm going to turn the lights back on. Two of the light switches were up. One of the light switches was down. I flipped the down light switch up. All the lights went off. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, this line is moving. I'm moving with the line. And I kept walking step 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 and i felt this claw just clamp down on my shoulder and uh i don't know if all teachers are psycho but private school has some fucking psycho teachers man holy shit okay that's all i'm gonna like rant about that but this uh chapel lady chewed me the fuck out and would not have any of my explanations that I was trying to turn the lights back on or any of it. Just... And I feel like that defined my entire relationship with authority for the rest of my life. Somewhat correlated. So, you know, some of us go through existential crises Uh every now and again. Uh Uh, What is the process of tearing down your entire worldview and rebuilding it and... Where would you say you are now? Um, okay, wow. The process of tearing down my entire worldview. Uh, that was sort of like an exponential explosion that where slowly I just started to have problems with religion and like what the connotations of that were. And it like began with little things like Like the first one was kind of like, you know, I don't really want to believe that in the end humanity is going to be so fucked up that God just torches all of it and starts over like that. I don't want to believe that. And then it grew into like, 
I don't want to believe that everyone who believes something different than me is going to hell. Like, I don't want to believe that. And like, well, how do I know I'm right? At least like, I guess just like it started with sort of trying to think critically with what my experience as a human being was compared to like what things I had been taught. I mean, there were other dumb things. Like I remember being a kid that I was in Sunday school and this woman who was the Sunday school teacher was trying to tell us that like animals don't go to heaven and she starts crying because her cat's not going to go to heaven. And I remember just being like, that's bullshit. I didn't know the word bullshit at the time, but that's what it was. Like, I remember just thinking like, that is not true. Like, I don't, I didn't think like that animals definitely do go to heaven, but I remember just going like, there is no way this lady Sunday school teacher knows for a fact that all animals just are annihilated upon death. It's <laughs> so, like, there were a lot of those little things like, you're telling me this with a lot of certainty, and I know that it's not a certainty. And those just kind of grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. Um, I mean, the thing that like broke it all wide open and caused me to just fully reject my entire worldview um, was I was going through a bunch of shit that was left over from my parents' house. I found some old journals that I had to write for some Bible class. And like all of them were just expressing feeling super lonely and isolated and bad about myself. Things that I journal about to this day, like things that like, if you look through the journals that I was writing, uh, which is why I stopped writing journals because they were so negative and like all have to do with like feeling isolated and, bad about myself and all sorts of stuff for some reason when i'm journaling it just like brings out the this weird like rap spiral of negative 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 stuff um which i don't feel all the time but like most of my journaling is like really just like uh but like the thing about these journals that i wrote when i was a kid is that i I kept expressing this idea that it was like, I felt this way because I wasn't good enough. Like I felt this way, like God was making me feel this way because I wasn't a good enough Christian. And I like wrote that in the journals. Uh, And I read that and I just got so fucking mad that anyone would imprint that belief onto me. That like, that I was allowed to be taught that there is something fundamentally wrong with me and like that showed me that like those negative feelings and like self-esteem issues that i have that are so powerful like aren't who i am but they're like part of an oppressive negative flawed system and like uh and like that exploded my entire worldview and like I just couldn't accept any of that after that point. And like it and I thought back through so much of my experience and like so much of the way different teachers taught me and et cetera, et cetera. And I thought through just like, man, like I have believed that like people who are talking to me about what the Bible says and shit, like I've believed everything they say because the Bible is the Bible. But like you know, it's really all just that woman saying that no cats go to heaven. It's like 
how the fuck do you know? Uh, and like, if the whole, if, if, if all the conclusions that are being shown to me that I am like drawing from my religious teachings are that like, I'm so worthless. The world is so worthless. God made all of us so fucked up that he had to kill himself to like save us from him sending us to hell. I don't even, I don't know. Like, so like, that's when everything just like completely collapsed and fell apart. I I still think Jesus is great. Like, I'm not going to get in, I'm not going to get into a huge sermon right now. I still think that there's like redeeming stuff to it. And I think that like people are the, problem and like certainty and like needing to know like i just try to embrace uncertainty at this point so how do i reconstruct my worldview the answer is i have no idea like i'm still in this like uh mode where like i'm just definitely afraid of that i'll never know anything and that like like knowledge or like capital t truth doesn't exist um but I, I guess like how do I rebuild my worldview is like I currently am trying to just embrace that I don't know and that's okay and that I have a lot of time left in my life. Or maybe I don't, whatever. But like like it's not worth just like focusing on how freaked out I am because it's okay to be freaked out. Like it's okay to be like, I don't know, I'm going oh, to die and that could be it. Or like, oh, who even knows? Like is there good and evil? Is anything? Ah, like that's fine. Like that's an okay place to be. And like accepting that that's temporary um and that like it's hard to imagine yourself changing even though you can look backwards and like see how much you've developed in the last five years like i'm extremely different than i was five years ago and like sometimes i feel trapped in this like i don't know anything like nothing is knowable how can I even connect with my family who's still religious, even though that has hurt me personally so deeply? Like, how can I? And I also find extreme atheists very distasteful, et cetera, et cetera. Like, everything just seems so distasteful to me. Like, how can I know anything? How can I decide anything? And just accepting that, like, that's where I am right now, and that's going to change. Or it's, or if, and who even knows how it's going to change? Like, we just don't stay the same. And, like, as long as I'm thinking and like asking and considering and trying to be open-minded, um, it's okay that I feel like I'm in free fall right now because that's not permanent. Do you ever pray anymore? Yeah, actually. Um, the reason I pray is that first I find atheism extremely distasteful because people who are certain about religious things that makes sense like you want to be certain about things but like atheism almost has this like fuck you side to it there's like this edge there's like this kind of negative i believe in nothing i don't know i'm sure there are atheists who are different than this and i don't want to like generalize but like there's a there's an equally distasteful certainty that atheists have. And I don't want that. And like I've been hurt so much by certainty and people telling me how things are that were wrong. And like, I don't want to just throw out religion because I was personally hurt because also like, I mean, I don't, I love 
the Chronicles of Narnia. I love Lord of the Rings. I think C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are fascinating, which are just two examples of like two Christians that I think are brilliant and like devoted their lives to knowledge and wisdom and studying. And like, I don't know. I'm not smarter than them. Like, maybe our venture, maybe. I'll end up writing some fucking opus and then they'll be like, oh yeah, Andrew, even better than the Lord of the Rings. But like, I doubt it. You know what I mean? It's like, those guys are like geniuses that I admire and I don't want to like throw all of those things out. I don't like to like say like those people are definitely wrong because I think everything is so complicated. So like to me, when I pray, it's about, it's embracing that I don't know. And it's like accepting that there could be a God and that I don't know and that like to pray is an act of opening myself up to possibility and um, like accepting my own incomplete picture of how things are. Because I want there to be a God. Uh, I just don't know how I could ever know that there is or isn't because how can you know anything? Let me throw a phrase at you. Mm-hmm. Ethical hedonism. Yeah. It's where you do what makes you happy, find your path, but in an ethical way. That's my philosophy that I strive for. How do you feel or would you agree with that as a, as a mantra or philosophy? Um, yeah, I talked, I talked to my friend Brent as well about ethical hedonism, which is... So is like his philosophy as well. I think this goes back to, we were talking about happiness before and like, I am such an unhappy person, not all the time, but like happiness is so fleeting and weird and unquantifiable and uncatchable to me that like, I don't view happiness as like the goal of my life. I view I mean, I, I brought up C.S. Lewis and Tolkien because they're powerful storytellers. And like, I believe that storytelling is one of my best abilities and it's the most interesting thing to me. And like, that's why I strive to be successful in that area. So like, maybe that's a different form of ethical hedonism, but like, I, that's why I'm so focused on doing things and like accomplishing things and yeah. So I guess that's what I think about ethical hedonism is like happiness is so confusing and fleeting and unquantifiable to me. And like based on so based on really confusing things and like juices bouncing around in my brain that like I have no power over. At least I haven't had any success gaining power over them that like uh, I just don't view happiness as like the point of my life. I don't look down on people who do like more power to happy people <laughs> but uh i don't know maybe that's another thing i need to let go of but i still like view the point of my life to be as significant as i can don't you think you're kind of you're setting yourself up to be miserable all the time yeah okay yes i'm glad you pointed if that out your ego is so big that because that let's be real Mm-hmm. If you need to be important, that is an ego thing. That's true. Right? You need to be, you want to be as important as the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. That would be super cool if people talked about you for ages. I agree. That would also be super cool. Yeah. So, at what 
point along that line is the satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, like Napoleon couldn't have been Napoleon if he wasn't just so anxious and fucked up all the time. I don't think I need to be like that level, but like he, he like, um, when he came into French parliament and was like, guess what motherfuckers I'm in charge now. He was so anxious that he scratched his face until he started bleeding. And like he, uh, you know, you don't like escape your prison island and reclaim your army and like take everything back over and then lose again. And like, you know, you don't do that stuff if you are caring about being happy. And I'm not saying I want to be Napoleon and like conquer the world and all of that stuff, but like, I don't know. I've said I would rather be unhappy and trying than like happy and sold out i guess and i don't think those are the only two options but like i don't know like it's it costs a lot of pain to do things like it costs a lot of suffering to successfully create art that's cool like even just like from a practicing standpoint like if i'm practicing something i'm not happy i don't like practicing it's it's like hard it's like i was talking about earlier like it's lazy i'm i'm lazy like if i'm if i'm i'm happy when i'm being lazy i'm happy when i'm like eating chips but like but like uh i don't know and like i'm i it's like the place that the happy medium i guess literally the happy medium like the trying to thread the needle where like you're perfectly you're ambitious but you're not so ambitious that you're miserable i would rather i would rather swing more on the ambitious side than on the content side and so you think at the end of life if you look back and you missed will it have been worth it yeah i think so i mean you swung the whole time yeah if i died like right now if i was like if I knew I was about to die, if I was bleeding out or something and I looked back at my life, uh, the things that are like the most worth doing didn't make me super happy. Like I've been working on this movie, which has been mostly really hard, mostly type three fun. (laughs) Um, and like I value that higher than being happy. And I don't know. Like now I'm kind of thinking that maybe, maybe that is like taking my friends for granted, but like, I don't know. I've never like struggled for friends. So maybe that's why I don't view it as like, I feel very happy and content with my, with my friends. Um, I don't feel like I, like I, I always want to be doing more stuff, which is, yeah, I don't know. I think like, if I could say that like I tried and I did look at these things that I did and like, look what I learned and like, look at what the way that I developed, like I would rather live longer and like make more movies that are better every time. But like, like if I keep trying and like keep improving, like each thing is better than the last thing. Uh, I don't know. That's like, that's what drives me. That's what I find fulfilling. Like seeing, seeing growth in myself and like seeing 
my skills developing. I wonder if Napoleon looked back on his life and was happy at his last breath. I don't know. I don't know either, but I'm not so sure he would be. Yeah. But I'm going to end that one there. That's an extreme example. (laughs) On a lighter note. Mm -hmm. How do you DM in your daily life? In my daily life? Yeah. Uh, I, I guess like it's all storytelling. And I remember... I remember like deciding that I liked, well, I don't know if I even decided, but, like when I was a kid, I would always tell jokes and I would learn other people's jokes and then I would tell them better and I would like workshop them and like figure out how to make them funnier every time. Um, which is probably where I started DMing. <laughs> like if that telling a joke is like a version of DMing cause you're like walking someone through an experience and you're thinking about the end and you're thinking about making the end land the whole time. And like, that's kind of my DM philosophy. Uh, Not that I'm trying to railroad, but like, I'll try to come up with like poignant things that I think are like interesting or challenging or funny or whatever. And I'll try to like steer it towards those things, Um, which is like also how I tell stories. Like people who tell stories who are all middle, who just start telling and they're just like, let me just talk until I decide that the story is done. Like that shit drives me crazy because telling a story is about making the ending land. And that's like, that's, I guess, in in real life. I don't know. I think a lot about, I think a lot about storytelling and like sticking the landing. Um, And yeah, like jokes and I mean, even doing podcasts, it's all like different versions of, of DMing, like ushering the story to its, to a satisfying conclusion. I also like irony or like, like long drawn out bits that like, I I feel like my humor style is very like, uh, you know, like rolling the grenade in and it delays and blows up like I like a lot of like if if one person laughs at my joke that's that's almost ideal like like if it's just quiet for a little bit and then one person gets it that's that's like a fun bit so I don't know I guess that's how I DM in my my everyday life I also just think think up I I I told you guys like last night or something that I have a D&D prep rule which is like if I'm going to bed and I think of an idea I like have to I force myself to write it down I have no uh no exceptions I have like a long list of I don't know dramatic or funny or whatever bits that I want to work into games That's enough on that the Floor is yours okay for 30 seconds Someone got the timer going? Oh. <laughs> so, in and out is so fucking overrated. Don't even get me started. I'm going to like... Okay, I got I to gotta make good use of my time here. So, we're in California, right? And everyone in California has such a hard-on for California. And California as a state is pretty good. The weather is pretty good. But in and out burgers... I mean, come on, dude. Go to Red Mill. Go to Blue Moon. Go to like anywhere else even five guys man it's like it's mediocre hey i didn't interrupt your rant it's mediocre all right so before joey gets on the mic um i 
before coming to California and spending a week plus here, I had this mentality that of why, why are Californians so firm, just like rock hard 24 seven about their state and being here, I get it more. I understand it a little bit better having spent time here and mostly in the national parks and seeing amazing things. Um, but also just interacting with people and seeing how for the most part, everyone's pretty calm, laid back and happy. Um, be that from the weather or just like the general chill environment. It is true. Um, I think that in and out though is one of those things that I just don't quite get yet. Like I've had it a couple times, both times I was like, this is delicious. And then I felt like ass in five minutes, um, which is kind of true for all fast food. So unless you have like the miracle, miracle cure, cure, Jesus fast food, I just don't get it. Stuff's fresh, tasted good. I felt like, butt. I'm not saying Dick's is better, but I am saying it's overrated. The Mexican food though here is, is tight. It would be pointless to contend right now. It would also be against the rules. I guess I argued. I apologize for yelling (laughs) during your floor. I try to give you a few extra seconds. Well, wait, Wallace, you want to send us off? Do I have like a send off? Is it a thing that I do? Do I have a thing? I don't remember what we did. You said I've been. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been Wallace. I've been cold cut. And I've been uh, recently pissed off, Joey. <laughs> oh, and it has been our privilege and our pleasure to serve you. Nice. <laughs>